Okay. Now, with that, yes, Ashley is right. I do have five hours of things. So let's begin. Five hours. Um, not quite, but I do have always quite a bit. But let me start here. This week, as I was re reading this passage again and teaching it, it became clear to me that I kept hearing in my head the words of a good atheist named H.G. Wells in a book called The War of the Worlds, which you may have heard of. And here's how he opens that book. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's. That as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in the, their assurance of their empire over matter. No one gave a thought to the old, older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea uh, of life upon them as impossible or improbable. Now, the reason that came to mind was Wells starts, if you don't know the book, it was written in 1898 and talks about aliens coming, so you would think there was already that talk. But what he's, he, and if you read the book, he's got a lot of overtones about religion involved. And one of the things is he said, you know, we were oblivious to the fact that for all this time we were going about our lives thinking we were kings, not knowing we were being watched, and that eventually there was going to be an invasion, that they were going to come, and then we'd have to deal with this. And he was lamenting that we weren't paying attention. And if we turn that same idea into this Christmas story, we see God has been watching. He had been watching and waiting, weighing the time so that, as Galatians says, at the perfect time, he would send his son. And when he comes, he comes and invades earth. This is, the, this is what Christmas is. It's an invasion of earth. I mean, it can, it can feel like an invasion, right? After Halloween, it's an invasion. There's, there's trees everywhere and songs everywhere and Hallmark movies everywhere. So it can feel like an invasion. But Luke himself, in his chapters, is making it very clear that he understood that God was invading his world. And let me just show you a couple ways that, that he makes that clear, and then we'll move into the bulk of this sermon. So the first thing he does is he uses the word today. In, in verse 9, he says, um, no, not verse 9, I beg your pardon. I don't recall where it was. I don't have it in front of me now. So he says, uh, on this day is born to you the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. When he says this day, it's the word in, in Greek that means today. And he uses it nine times throughout the gospel. And every time he uses it, read it, you're going to see he brings up, the, he uses the word to say something interesting. He says, today is not just any day, it's a new day. Something brand new is breaking in on you. So in chapter four, when he uses it again, he says, remember he's in, the, his, his, he's in Nazareth and he's reading and he's preaching and he reads from Isaiah and he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So today is a new day, he says. The new thing has begun. And again, he does it many times, but if you go to chapter 19 with Zacchaeus, he tells Zacchaeus to get down out of the tree because he's coming to eat with him today. It's a new day, Zacchaeus. And then on the cross, he says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. So Luke uses the word today to signal an inbreaking of God into our world. Something new is happening that cannot be ignored and nothing will ever be the same. But it's even more more obvious than that. He has a number of contrasts in this first chapter, or this first two chapters that we read. The first one is angels show up. The very fact that angels show up is an invasion of earth, right? But it gets even more contrastual, what, what he does. 
where are the shepherds? They're in the fields by night. And what immediately do we hear right afterwards? In comes light. So the darkness is being invaded by the light. They have great fear at seeing him, but don't worry, I have news of great joy. And so there's this, convert, this, this radical transformation that is happening at Christmas. Think also about the fact that the songs all throughout the first chapters, remember last week we talked about four different songs. This is the only one sung by heavenly beings. So now the praise isn't coming heaven from earth upward, but it's coming heaven downward. And so Luke is trying to show us, and God is showing us, that he is coming into the world and everything is being changed. Joy is coming in the place of fear, light in the place of darkness, and so on. And so when invaders come into any land, any invader, human or otherwise, they basically do three things. They come to either liberate, conquer, or reestablish. That's what invaders do, to liberate a people that are in slavery, to conquer a land, or to reestablish order or their own power and control where they used to have it. And it's amazing that when Luke introduces Jesus here, you know, if last week we were hearing in Mary's song, what is a Christian, now we are hearing who is Jesus. And the three titles he's given is Savior, Christ, and Lord. As a Savior, he comes to liberate. As Christ, he comes to conquer. As Lord, he comes to reestablish his dominance over the world. And when we look at those three, you're going to learn what is, who is Jesus and what is Christmas. So let's look at that, this invasion, first through the lens of being liberated as a Savior. So if I'm at home and I'm cooking, uh, which again, as you heard last week, is not a good idea, but if I'm cooking and I can't get this, the gas stove to turn on, how do I determine who to call? Well, I have to first diagnose the problem. And if it's not, you know, flicking and clicking and, and starting the, is it an igniter? Whatever that thing is. See how, I don't know anything. But if it's not clicking, then is the problem the stove itself? Or is it the line, the gas line? Is there a problem there? Or is it the gas supply? Is there a gas supply problem? I need to know what the problem is before I can call someone to fix it. Because if I don't know the problem, I may call the wrong person, right? And then just waste time and money. So when we're trying to determine what is wrong with the world, if we don't know what the problem is, we're bound to be following the wrong saviors and calling the wrong people to save us. And this can be seen all through history. And in my mind, what came immediately to mind this, while I was reading this was in 2008, everybody here was alive in 2008, right? Most of you. If, that's, if you were around, you would remember in the United States, there's a presidential election and Obama, was, coming, was going to be elected. Now, there was great fervor around Obama. It became very clear that people had great hope. In fact, I think literally one of the slogans around him, around his followers, were people saying he's the great black hope, that he was going to be the savior of, of America. And one, well, many people did this, but one person in particular wrote an editorial uh, column, or editorial letter, to a very small newspaper in East Illinois, and it's got a very small place name called East Illinois Journal-Gazette Times Courier. <laughs> that's a big name for Journal-Gazette Times Courier. I think one of those would have sufficed, but that's okay. So he writes in this letter, and here's just a part of what he wrote. I'm taking a special look at Barack Obama because he's a lot closer to a Jesus type than the other candidates by quite a bit. What if God decided to incarnate as men preaching hope and change? And what if we didn't recognize them? because we are so dull and let them slip away, not availing ourselves of the opportunity to be led by God. Lord knows we've elected the Antichrist often enough. 
Now, this person in their letter to the editor is exuberant, literally referring to Obama as the Messiah, that he has come to save America from the mess that they were in. And this is sadly very common, not just in America. We do it all the time. Christians do it. People at Redeemer do it. We're often looking subtly for something other than Christ to save us. And it's never worked, has it? How many years do we have to go by of electing the wrong people or the right people and then them all failing us? Listen, I'm not knocking Barack Obama. Is the world any better? I'm not knocking Donald Trump, Justin Trudeau, any of them. Is the world any better? No, of course not. But the problem is, if you think the biggest problem the world has is sustainable energy, injustice, poverty, and racism, if that's the biggest problem we have, it's of course you're going to look for people to try to solve those problems. But what if the Bible was true? Because if that's the case, if those are our biggest problems, and you have to admit humanity is miserable at remedying their own problems. But what if the Bible was right in, in, in diagnosing the problem at a lower, at a deeper core, uh, source, which is saying that when you fell, when you and I fell, there was two breaks that occurred, well, many breaks, but two up, up front. One, you broke a law. You did something you shouldn't have. You rejected God when he deserved better. So a law is broken and punishment is needed. But there's also a break in a relationship. And if there's a break in a relationship, right, the Bible says the reason you can't get justice right, the reason Obama can't save you, is because, it's, as we said last week, it's not that you can't make good decisions, or that you don't make good decisions, it's that you cannot make good decisions. So the first thing that must be healed, what you need a savior from, is from the separation from God. If that is healed, there will be healing elsewhere. There will be no reconciliation with the indigenous people in this country until there's reconciliation with Christ. There'll be no recon In fact, is there such a thing as reconciliation where there was never peace? Have we ever had peace with the indigenous people? Sorry, that's my pontificating. We need something far deeper than that. And so, how do you heal a relationship? And now let me use an example I've heard time and again. I didn't create it, but it's as clear as I can be about what the gospel does. Imagine you're a judge, and you go to, the, the, to, to court and you sit up on the bench and you see that the first case you're going to be facing is a very dire one. Somebody's committed a grievous crime and there's a harsh penalty that has to, be, has to be handed out to them. But when you see the person come up, you realize, oh my goodness, I know this person. I know this criminal. I know this, this transgressor friend, was an old friend of mine. When you see them, how, what, what are you going to do? And the judge realizes in order to be just, he must hand down the actual letter of the law. He can't let it slide, even if he loves the guy, because he would be an unjust judge. So, but he, deep down, but he also wants to save them. So how do you do it? And the image of the gospel is this, that the judge being God sees you, and he says, I must be just. The penalty is death. You deserve death for what you've done. And it is pronounced. Death sentence comes down. But then the judge takes off his robes, comes down from the bench, stands in, the, in, this, in your place, and then pays the price for you. And that is what the gospel says. That is what Christianity is. That is what Christmas announces, is that you have a penalty that you cannot be free from. And you're going to keep hiring and electing Obamas and Trudeaus and whoever else. Is it Paul Ever? Is he coming now? It's not, we're going to do our best to elect good people, but none of them will save us from our mess. None but Christ alone. He comes as a savior, the only possible savior. And there's a guy named Philip Ryken. He's the president of Wheaton College in the United States. And he has this to say about the peace that we get when he does save us. 
When we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we have real peace. We do not always gain the full benefit of that peace because sometimes we forget to trust God for it. But as we trust in him, he gives us peace. We do not need to be anxious about the future. We do not need to be afraid what people will think. We do not need to try to solve our problems on our own. We do not need to worry how God will provide for us. We do not need to despair if we lose what we love. All we need to do is trust in God and he will give us peace. And this is how Christ comes first and foremost as a liberator. He comes as savior to save us. And what can he save? He's only saving us if you can't save yourself. You see, if somebody is, you know when it's very nice when you're at Tim Hortons and you find out that uh, the person in front of you has paid your coffee? Have you ever had that happen? Um, it's really nice. And you feel like you've been treated, but you don't feel like you've been saved. Right? It's a coffee. I could have covered the cost. And any person who believes they could have covered the cost is not saved because they don't acknowledge that they even need to be saved. They're saying, well, it's very nice of you, Jesus. Very nice that you came, but it was really overdoing it, wasn't it? Didn't have to. The gospel says, no, no, there's only one Savior, only one way, and that Christmas, he comes to liberate you. And that's the first thing he comes to do as an invader of our world, to liberate. But the second thing he comes to do is to conquer. Now, in the first century, right around just before Jesus, Augustus Caesar was the, um, the emperor. And it's hard for us to understate or to overestimate, overstate how important Augustus Caesar was to Rome. He was a big deal because he came at a time when there was civil war after Julius Caesar died. He comes and he not only ends the war, but he brings peace, stability, and flourishing in the Pax Romana, the peace across the empire. He's huge in the history of Rome. And around the time, just before Jesus is born, uh, well, in, in around when he was born and such, there's, um, there's this movement within the Roman Empire to make Augustus's birthday the new new year so that the year will begin on his birthday, which was September 23rd. And we have correspondence between different officials, Romans talking about, hey, should we do this? And it's fascinating to read what people thought about Caesar. And you'll see why this is important in a second. Here is what one of the letters says. Whereas the providence which divinely ordered our lives created with zeal and munificence the most perfect good for our lives by producing Augustus and filling him with virtue for the benefaction of mankind, sending us and those after us a savior who put an end to war and established all things. And whereas Caesar, when he appeared, exceeded the hopes of all who had anticipated good tidings, which is the word gospel, and whereas the birthday of the God marked for the world the beginning of good things through his coming. Interesting, isn't it? So when this happens, look at what, the, what we see here immediately. As a historian, you see this. There is already a vocabulary and an imagery around the idea of the emperor that is being used. It's being thrown around in the culture, common words that Luke would have known, Jesus would have known, certainly God would have known. And in this letter, for instance, it's saying things like, all the good things that Caesar has done for, the, for Rome is by God. The gods have done it. They have done it. It's divinely, it's providential that he was given to us to bring perfect good to us. He is the benefaction of all mankind, meaning the good of all mankind. He is, he's our savior. It's the word soter in Greek, which is the same word applied to Christ. He's a savior because he's brought end to war and peace. He has brought, oh, he's answered all the hopes, the longings of Rome not just that, he has brought good tidings, the gospel. It literally says Caesar is the soter, savior, who has brought the evangelion, the gospel. 
right? All this language. And then it says his birthday, the birthday of the God, they call him a God, marked for us, marked for the world, the beginning of good tidings of the gospel through his coming. Listen, this predates the gospel of Luke. So when the angels show up and they say very clearly, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angels, and Luke, who's now writing it into his gospel, is doing something very bold. He is doing one of two things or both. One, he is taking direct aim at the language that is applied to Caesar and saying, it's not him, Christ deserves this language only, which is a slap in the face to the culture. But he's also doing what we have reviled other cultures for doing about the church. When we see the pride flag flying, you want to say what they have done is they have taken the image of the rainbow from Genesis, a Christian image, and they have reappropriated it for themselves. What Luke is doing here is doing the exact same thing the other way around. He is saying, hey, you talk about Caesar being the savior and all this? Christ. And he's reappropriating it, saying Christ is the answer, not Caesar. There's no other kings. There's no other rulers. There's one. And so the Messiah, when he comes, comes as conqueror. There's no other kings. There's one king. And we'll see more of that in a second. But one thing is also worth noting here. The propaganda doesn't work. Although all this language circulated around the emperor, listen, Romans knew Caesar's bled because they killed them a lot. They knew they were, in, they were fallible. In fact, a great Stoic philosopher named Epictetus, who was born in 50 AD, so about 20 years after Christ dies, um, has this to say. While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. And here's a Stoic, not a Christian, who says, okay, listen, Caesar's been a good help. He's brought stability but he can't really help me. Not with the deepest things that I have. And so, God, so when Jesus shows up, what he's doing is he comes as a conqueror to cut down anything that is keeping us apart from him. We could go into many other gods, small g gods, that, that keep us from God, but there's no rivals. He comes brutally exclusive. And we shouldn't shy away from this. The culture says Christianity is too exclusive a religion. yes. It is. And don't try to soften it, Christians. It is. There's only one way to heaven. One way to salvation. Acts is pretty clear, right? For there is no other name under, given under heaven by which men must be saved. One name. And that sounds very harsh, but in, at Christmas, what God is clearly saying is, I'm sorry, church world, there is one God. There is one Messiah. And it gets even more exclusive. It's not just saying the one Messiah is, God, is Jesus. It says, when, when Luke says he is the Christ, he's, he's enacting this word that means Messiah. When Luke says this, do you understand? Culturally, he is saying to the world, an ethnic Jew is the salvation of everything, which angers a lot of the world. Do you want to go to parts of the Middle East and say the, save, the hope of the world is a Jew? It's offensive. It always has been and it always will be. It's not Buddha. It's not your enlightenment, it's not your good works, it's not Muhammad, it's not politicians, it's not scientists, and it's not you. Christ alone. And that sounds very exclusive, but it's actually the only logical hope that we have as well. So, 
Um, you know, and why he does it. Why does God come? People often say, God is such a glory hog, you know? He, he hates, why does he, why does he need my worship? First, God doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need it. He wants it because he knows it's best for you, not because of otherwise. Because he realizes as the one who made us that any other Messiah that you put in your life will abuse you. If you make any other religion your Messiah, that religion will say, once you perform, you will be saved. If you're good, you'll be saved, but not until you've earned it. If you make your career your Messiah, it will demand everything from you, and then it'll discard you when prophets aren't there. You'll be downsized. And not just that, it'll never even, even if you have a wonderful career, it'll never live up. It'll never give you everything. Understand even what Epictetus was saying. Caesar is no different than your job. It won't, give, it won't satisfy your, your longings of your heart. Your family will leave you either because they'll leave you or because of death. Death will separate us all from the ones we love, one way or the other. It doesn't matter what side of it you're on. It's good to love your family, but your family cannot be your savior. You can't live for your family because when they're taken from you, you'll be destroyed, you'll be broken. You can't even make pleasure your savior. You know, going from pleasure to pleasure because all that does, it's kind of like being a, dr in a drug addict in some ways. It increases the craving for pleasure but diminishes the joy you get from the pleasure. So you're always needing more pleasure, more pleasure, more, bigger thrills, bigger whatevers. And it never works. Christ is jealous for your love, not because he needs it but because you do. And he knows that you'll only be happy when you make him, when not when you make him, when you accept that he is Lord of your life. Now, I love the fact, let me close the second point here. When he says today, today, you know what words do? When we went from being an oral culture to a written culture, what we did was we froze speech. It's no longer I can only hear what you've said and then try to remember it and critique it, but I take your words and I write them down, meaning they're frozen there and they're ever-present to me, ever-present. And so when you and I read, and when Raph read earlier, that today the Messiah is born. Of course, it doesn't mean the Messiah is just being born today. But what it does announce to you is that now, in your hearing, he comes to you again as conqueror. And it's a fresh call to, to bend a knee to this conquering king, time and again. It's a, and it may sound ruthless. It's not. It's actually full of grace because he doesn't need to ask you to repent. He could just crush you. But he doesn't. It's not what, that's not the God we serve. He comes and he invites people through Christmas, through the incarnation, to believe. But now... He comes lastly as a conqueror to reestablish. Now, when I say that, think about if you know the story of Robin Hood. If you've, I, I, when I was younger, all I knew was that uh, Bugs Bunny Robin Hood. That's all I knew. Um, <laughs> but, but what happens, and I still think it's pretty funny, by the way. But when you, when you know the story, here's what happens. Richard the Lionheart of England has gone away to fight in a war at the Crusades. And while he's gone, Prince John decides to take advantage of that to set up his, to his own command of England and basically rule as king. Robin Hood and his merry men act as a resistance force to say, no, we're, you're not the king, we're not going to support you. But eventually, at the end, what happens is Richard returns. And when Richard comes back from the Crusades, he reestablishes his lordship over England, and Prince John is dealt with. And this is the same idea that we have in the gospel. In fact, the story of Robin Hood comes from the gospel. It's rooted in that same idea. Now, we know that there's this sense of this happening here, and Luke is doing it for a few reasons. When Christ comes back as Lord, we, Luke does something for the first time in the history of, the, of Israel and of, of the Bible that only gets repeated a couple times after him. 
up until this point, all through the Old Testament, and if you read the Greek Old Testament, you only find Christ and Lord combined when it says he is the Christ or they're expecting the Christ of the Lord. So what it does in the Old Testament, it says the Christ of God is coming, meaning they could be two separate people, right? The Christ of God is coming. But what Luke does for the first time is he says, he who has come as Savior, Christ the Lord. So what, he, what he's saying is, it's not that there's a separate Savior. The Savior is God. It's radical, very radical. And only two, I think only two other people ever combine it in the New Testament. And if it's not even more obvious, and remember, you're going to get this if you know anyone who's like a Unitarian or those who disagree with Christ's being divine, then they have a big problem here. Not only the way Luke does it here, but up until this point, so just two chapters in, not even two, a chapter and a half into his gospel, he has already used up until this point the word Lord, Kyrios in Greek, 20 times. This is the 20th time. Now, in the first 19, every single one of them refers to God. And then seamlessly, he then says, here's this baby born who is the Lord. Now, if he meant to say, he's, okay, he's not, he's a different kind of Lord. You know, he's like a little sub, he's a sub man, you know, he's a middle manager. If that's what he meant to say, then Luke surely would have said, here's Christ who is something else. But he doesn't. He seamlessly uses the same word he has been consistently using for God. So what we are seeing here is not just a good teacher, not just a sage, not just someone whose advice you can take or leave. He is Lord. If that's the case, his opinion on your sexuality, his opinion on your life, your decisions, how you use your money, how you spend your time, is not up for debate. He is Lord. And that is a harsh claim for Christmas. You just, we just want to watch Frosty. But Christmas comes and says, he is your Lord who has come to her. And this is a very harsh thing, but we need to do it. And this is where I, earlier, I may, you heard, may have heard, I corrected myself a little, because we have this tendency when we become Christians or we, people be, become Christians, we say, I'm going to make Christ my Lord. No, you don't. You don't make Christ anything. He is Lord, regardless of whether you bend to need him. He is Lord. What you do when you become a Christian is you say, okay, I'm laying down my arms, acknowledging he is Lord. I'm not going to resist him anymore. But you and I cannot make him unlord. He's Lord. That's it. And this is his great invasion. He's coming to say, I am Lord, and I'm taking back what is mine. I'm reestablishing what is mine. And if this is the truth, then it requires a great reassessment of everything for us. Remember when COVID hit? I say it like it's that long ago. Um, two years ago, or, or two and a half, I guess. And when COVID hit, everything changed, right? We had to start thinking about how do we shop? How do we work? How do we hang out with our friends? How do we communicate? Everything changed because a new reality had broken in. And imagine now if this is true, if there is one God and he is the God of the Bible, it demands that everything you think about in the world has to be reassessed with that paradigm in place. Um, it's like kind of like with your eyes adjusting to light or um, a prisoner getting used to being free, or even a cripple getting used to dancing afterwards. How do you do that? So it requires a full reassessment of all the things you believe about everything, politics, gender, all of it, because he is Lord. And that's why the great question, when people often ask me questions about same-sex marriage and about gender identity, it's very simple to me. Is Christ Lord or not? 
Is the Bible his word? If it is, obey it. If it isn't, you're going to show you don't believe it's his word by not obeying it. So it's not about do I like this, do I not like it, what does the church think? It's not about that. What does scripture say? If he is Lord, obey him. If he is not, then take your chances otherwise. And this is Christmas. Like we don't put that on Christmas cards, I guess. But it's, we have to see it. We have to pull back Christmas to an extent, at least in our groups, in our families, in our church, in our community, away from Bing Crosby. And I like the Bing Crosby songs. I've said that before. But we need to remind people, this is a savior coming into the world to save it, to conquer it, and to, to keep it for himself. So we have to remember that. Now, Christmas brings a peace, but it doesn't just, but it also creates a longing. I love that old song, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Now, it's true. It's a measurable peace that the gospel brings, but it also creates an uneasiness in us. It creates a hope for the second coming because it's great that he has come, but now we're thinking, but the world's broken still and it's awaiting its full restoration. But Christians don't sit back. You know that old saying that Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good? That's not the way we're to be. It should create such a longing in us that we look to the future that's to come and we're so anxious for it that we try to drag it into the present. That we try to take what the world will be like into our current workplaces, into our families, into our own lives. And as a result, we're always trying to draw the light into the darkness. This is what churches should be doing, what Christians ought to be doing. And, this, and it should create, at the same time, this immeasurable joy. Christmas, we should be the most happy people in the world. Think about the tumult that these angels bring. They're singing and they're screaming. There's, all, there's rejoicing in heaven at what's going on when this baby is born. And yet, you know, as far as I know from Scripture, the angels don't benefit from the incarnation. You benefit from it. I benefit from it. And they're the ones singing. Why are they singing about something that isn't necessarily... Again, listen, I may get up there and find out, Carl, you missed it. But I don't see in Scripture that that Christ came to save the angels. Why is it that they're singing? And the reason is because the people of God cannot help but exalt when Christ is exalted. So we see Christ and God showing off how wonderful He is and how gracious He is. We can't help but cheer and say, that's our God. That's our God. We should be the ones jumping and, jo- and, and screaming more than anyone. We should be singing these Christmas carols like no one before us. We should be excited because he's invaded our hearts, liberated us from sin, conquered our hearts and freeing us from false gods, and having established lordship over our hearts, he is coming again. Christians ought to rejoice. Skeptics, lay down your arms. Simple. Sounds simple. I know it's not. We ought to be rejoicing as a people at Christmas. We ought to be so over-the-top happy. We ought to have like Christmas vests. We ought to be like giving money away. It's got to be so much to the point of where people are saying, gosh, what has caused them to do this? What has, what has caused this church to become so self-giving that they're bordering on poverty themselves, that they're almost willing to make themselves poor to make others around them rich? That's the generosity this ought to exhibit in us. And of course, it doesn't all the time, and I, I get that. But if you're a skeptic, Lay down your arms. The invari- and this is why. You don't just lay down your arms because you have no choice. Listen, ultimately you don't. Ultimately God is Lord. However, he doesn't come and say, lay down or else. People often say it sounds like a threat. No, no. When Christ comes, you see how he comes. He comes and says, I am going to bring you peace, not like Caesar. Caesar can only bring peace by decapitating his enemy. right? By heaping up dead bodies. 
Christ comes and says, I'm going to bring you peace by bearing it myself. I am going to bear it. I am going to die so that you can have peace. And if that's the way he approaches you, he can be trusted with all of your life. It's Christmas. Christians rejoice. Skeptics, lay down your arms. He is worthy to be praised. Let's pray.